I'd like to sing that one again to tell you the truth. <laughs> what a great song, what a great hymn. <laughs> Tells the story of Easter from the birth to the, to the end for all of us. What a great, great testimony. Well, this morning we're going to look once again in the New Testament book of 1 Peter. I invite you to take your Bible or uh, wherever you have your scriptures and turn to 1 Peter. If you'll start at the back of your Bible at Revelation and then move forward three or four books, you'll find 1 Peter. It'll, it'll be easier to start at the end and find it than it will to start at the beginning and find it. 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, and we'll begin reading starting at verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of the life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last, last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. You may want to hold your Bible close. We're going to look at uh, some, some additional scripture this morning as well. In the passage that we read, we heard from the apostle Peter. And Peter was writing in the first century to churches that had sprung up in the area, and in the area around the Black Sea, in what was known as Asia Minor. Peter was writing to specific churches in specific places, and if you go back and start at the beginning of 1 Peter and read chapter 1, you'll see a listing of those towns where he was addressing these churches. Now, it was a challenging time for Christians and a challenging time for the church. Part of what was happening in that time was that the church was facing persecution. Bible scholars believe that Peter died in the mid to late 60s. We're talking about the first century, so in the mid to late 60s. Therefore, he had to have written these letters prior to that. The persecution of the Christians was a well-known fact during that time period. If you've heard of Nero, you are aware that as the Roman emperor, there was a period of persecution of Christians under his reign. From 62 to 64 AD, it was a very hard time to be a Christian. There were horrible things going on, terrible persecutions. If you'll think about the movies that you've seen from that time period, the movies of gladiators and um, the Colosseum and fighting and those kinds of things, that's the time period we're talking about. I think often we read our Bible and think that these things just happened in a vacuum somewhere, but they didn't. They happened in history, and they happened in a culture that was going on around them. So if you think of some of those movies that you might have seen, or if you remember much of your world history, that's the actual time and place that we're talking about. The stories that uh, he told of Christians being thrown to the lions for entertainment. Now that makes it tough to be a Christian. 
And that's the period of time that, in which Peter was writing. It's in that setting that Peter wrote these words to the churches, and he is sending them a word of encouragement and giving them advice on how to live in the world that they found themselves in. Because Peter is writing to the church and to the people that are Christians in the church, I think we as Christians today in the church can also receive a word of encouragement and instruction on how to live from this letter that Peter wrote. This morning, I want us to focus particularly on verses 22 and 23. So let's read those again so they'll be clear in your mind. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. It seems to me in those two verses, there's two words that kind of, or two themes that sort of stand out. And that is obey, and that is love. We hear both of them there. Obey is a pretty clear command. We understand what that means. It's pretty black and white. Love is another verb, but it's also a concept. And sometimes that's a little harder to kind of wrap our brains around. Even though we think we know about it, I'm not sure we always do. When you hear the word obey, you know that means you've got to do something, right? You're going to do what somebody has told you to do. Either your parents, your boss, your government, somebody who has authority over you has told you this is the rule and they expect you to do it or to keep it. And that's what obey means. And so generally, you know, we get that. We may not always do it, but we understand it. We know it's pretty clear. It seems really simple. But in this passage, what he says is to obey the truth. And so then the question is raised, what truth? What truth is Peter talking about? There's lots of truth out there. There are a lot of people who think they have truth. So what's the truth that Peter is encouraging us to obey? Well, Peter made that clear in the verse right before the verses that we just read. In verse 21, Peter says, Through him, meaning Jesus, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. That was the truth. That's the Easter message, isn't it? As we're here still in the season of Easter. And that's pretty clear. The truth is found in Jesus. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the truth of, of which Peter was speaking. Today, I believe that we in the church also have to remember that that is the truth for us, the truth of Jesus Christ. And in the face of difficulties, whether in the first century A.D. or whether in our century, we have to keep our focus on Jesus. The truth of Jesus and who he is is what leads us to God. In their world of persecution, their hope was in God, who they knew through Jesus. And in our world of uncertainty, our hope too is in God, who we also know through Jesus. That's pretty simple. We must be obedient to the truth of Jesus. And according to Peter, the obedience to that truth of Jesus should lead us to love. And that's the next concept. In verse 22, he says, Obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, 
love one another deeply from the heart. Now that sounds easy. We know all about love, right? We know all the cliches, we know all the songs, we know all the, the right things. We can quote the, the um, quotes, all you need is love. Yeah, we'd agree with that. Uh, love makes the world go round, sure. Yeah, that sounds like a great thing, We're, we like that. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, right? Everybody thinks that's a great plan and we understand the concept of love. But in reality, I think love is often more difficult than the obedience part. Obedience is a choice. We either choose to obey or we don't. At least we know what the, what the parameters are. But with love, it's not quite so easy. Love seems a bit more ambiguous, I think. We know what love means with the big L, right? We know what love is as we've sung about it this morning. I think the problem is, though, that we struggle more with the details of love. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Allure of Gentleness, says, Love, like other attitudes and virtues, cannot be taught. It can only be caught. You can teach people that they ought to love, but not to love. Now, that makes a lot of sense. You, can, you know you ought to do it, but that doesn't mean that you do it. He's exactly right. So how do we figure out how to actually love people and to do love? When you come to church, you talk about love a lot. We know how to talk about love in church. We've sung some beautiful hymns this morning about love, and we hear those things, and we sing those things, and we, we, are, we love that, <laughs> right? You know, because that's exactly what we know. One of the first things that we learn in church or in our Christian families is God is what? Love. God is love. One of the first things we learn. Many of you probably grew up like I did, learning children's songs. I'm sure the first two songs that I could have sung to you was what? Jesus loves me. And the other one in my family was Jesus loves little children. How many of you know that one? Yep. We know those songs, and we sing those songs, and we believe those songs. We teach it to our children because we believe it's true. We believe Jesus does love us, and he does. And we believe Jesus does love the little children, and he does. The problem comes in when, when we think that it's true of Jesus, but somehow we forget that it's supposed to be true for us too. We are supposed to be loving. We are called to love all the little children. Now, you and I both know part of the problem with that is that little children grow up to be teenagers and adults. And it gets harder to love them then, doesn't it? It does. But that doesn't, that doesn't matter. We are still called to love them. And we say that we're pretty good at that. We say that we love people. And evidently, um, we think we're good at it. But I think if we look at the world, the world will tell us that we're not quite so good at it. If we are really going to be honest with ourselves and think about the world in which we live and the way that we act, we know that we are not as good at love as we should be. Honestly, we probably don't really love our neighbors as much as we should. We haven't loved the people in our cities that we don't know. We have not loved very well the immigrants in our cities. We have not loved very well those people who hold a different political stance than we do. We haven't loved those who don't look like us 
or have the same amount of wealth that we have or the same education that we have. We haven't loved very well those people that we disagree with. Our attitude of love is not as developed as it should be, at least not in the details of living it out daily. As Christians, we aren't mean to people, generally. We know better than that. But have we really taken the time to really get to know them, to really love them, to even see them, not even mentioning sharing our lives with them? Have we really moved beyond the ambiguous concept of love to loving in the trenches, loving in the details? I don't think our love is as broad or as deep as Jesus' love is. Now, his love scares us because that means that to have his type of love, we really do have to get outside of our comfort zone. We have to get outside of our circle and embrace people that we don't know and that we don't agree with and that we don't think we like. We might do a little bit better when it comes to loving those of us who love us, we might get that better, but Jesus calls us out on that pretty clearly. In Matthew chapter 5, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, these are the words of Jesus. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Now Jesus is telling it like it is, friends. He's laying it on the line for us right there. He understands that loving people is hard, but we don't get a pass just because it's hard. We have to be willing to love people when it's hard for us to do that. And that means we have to love all those people that we know and that we don't know, and that we agree with and that we don't agree with. In the midst of difficulties, in the time in which Peter was writing, in the midst of their persecution and a pretty hostile environment, Peter was calling the church not to defend itself, not to, to, to surround themselves with just each other. He's calling them to love. He's calling them to love themselves better so that they can love others better. And Peter understood that it was hard because if you think about it, Peter had failed at it. He had not even been able to love Jesus with the depth that he needed to. He couldn't even love Jesus enough to stand up for him standing by the campfire the night of that holy week. But Peter also knew that love was strong and that love was powerful. And so that's what he was calling the church to do, to love each other, so that they could stand up strong together to face the persecution that was around them. And so they could support one another and maybe even be a witness to the people that were in their towns and cities. If they loved one another deeply, then surely others would see that love and would want to be a part of it. And as they saw that love and were drawn to it, then they could find out about Jesus and come to know Jesus, and then they could find God. Today, we have to do the same thing. We have to love each other in the, in the church so that we can love people around us, and so that people can see Jesus in us. If we're not able to be loving toward each other, then how can we expect those people who don't know Christ at all to believe us when we tell them that God is love? Or when we say to them, Jesus loves the little children, 
Jesus loves the big children. Jesus loves people. But our actions and our words don't speak of that kind of love. Each quarter, I get a publication at church called Facts and Trends. It's published from Lifeway, which is the, the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And they do some great um, research in the, the work that they do and publish it regularly in their periodical. And in the spring periodical that just landed on my desk just this week, they had taken the poll of unchurched Americans. And they gave them this statement and asked them to respond to it. I would be more interested in listening to what Christians have to say if I saw Christians dot, dot, dot. Okay. I'd be more interested in listening to Christians, what they have to say, if I saw Christians doing these things. 32% said they'd be more likely to listen if they saw Christians treating others better because of their faith. 32% of the people said that. 31% said they would be more interested in listening to Christians if they saw Christians caring for people's needs because of faith. They'd be more likely to listen to Christians, and let's just say it, listen to us. 26% said if people and us were happier because of our faith. 24% said if they saw Christians standing up against injustice. 22% said if they saw Christians using faith to solve community problems and to solve their own personal problems. 21% said they would be more interested in listening what Christians have to say if they saw Christians working together with multiple races or ethnicities in church. And that's what the people that are not in the church think about the people like us that are in the church. Don't think they're not watching us <laughs> because obviously they are. Obviously, they know how we act and what we say and what we say we believe to them. But we as the church have got to face up to the fact that we must not be doing something right. Because if that's what they see, then why, why do they see that? They see it because that's who we are to them. That's what they see of us in the world. And if we as individuals and as the church were truly showing the love of Christ to people, wouldn't they want to come? Wouldn't they at least want to know about that Jesus? Now, we cannot say that we don't know how to do it. We can't say we don't know how to love these people that are different from us or that are outside the walls of this church because Jesus showed us how to do it. Jesus showed us in his life how to love people and how to treat people. And the Bible gives us clear direction on what love should look like. Not just the big concept of love, but what it looks like in the details. If you still have your Bibles, flip a few more uh, books back toward the beginning of the New Testament and go to 1 Corinthians. When I say to you 1 Corinthians 13, what do you think? Love. See, we know the right answers, don't we? That's the love chapter. We know that that's the love chapter. We most often hear this chapter read when? Weddings. Exactly right. We read it at weddings because we think young people who are getting married don't realize they've got to love each other and what it looks like, and we want them to get it right. So we read this at weddings. But these are not words just for starting out in a marriage. These are words for life. These are words for every relationship that we are part of. They are descriptions of how we should treat people, everybody. 
No questions asked. Each person. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but let's start at verse 4. I want you to listen and pay attention to the words. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. We say we don't know what to do and how to love. If we don't, it's because we're not reading our Bible. We're not paying attention to what Jesus says because he says it so clearly there. Those are the details of love. Be patient and be kind with everyone, whether they cut you off in traffic or not, whether they look different than you do or not. Be patient and be kind with our own families and with those that are outside of our families. Do not envy. Do not be boastful. Do not be proud. One translation reads that, do not be arrogant. One thing that non-Christians don't like about Christians is that we think we know everything. If you ask them, that's exactly what they'll tell you. That's being prideful, to think that our way is the only way. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not truth, because there is. We've already talked about that. The truth of Jesus is the truth we live by. But we don't have to be arrogant and prideful in the way that we share that truth with people. Love is not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered. Those all speak to our interactions with people, how we treat one another and how we get along with one another. We have to watch the words that come out of our mouth because when words come out with anger, people put up walls and don't listen to those words. Love keeps no record of wrongdoing. What does that mean? Forgiveness, that's what that means. Love forgives. Love rejoices with the truth, which we've already said is Jesus. Love always protects and trusts it protects and trusts people around us. We protect people by not um, slaying them, by not listening to people talk about people, by not thinking bad about people without going to somebody and checking out what the truth is. We don't um, blame or, or speak badly against somebody's reputation. We check it out with people first. And what about trust? What does trust really mean? Trust. What's the opposite of trust? Doubt, right? Doubt is the opposite of trust. In the Garden of Eden, what does Satan do? He planted doubt. He planted doubt in the hearts and in the minds of Adam and Eve and told them, you know, God's holding out on you. God's got something better, but he doesn't want to give it to you. He planted doubt in their minds and in their hearts. And that led to a fracture in their relationship because they did not trust God enough. Their love did not have that depth of trust. Love always hopes for the best in others and in the future. And it looks for the good, not for the bad. Love perseveres. I looked that word up. What exactly does perseveres mean? It means to maintain a purpose in spite of difficulty obstacles or discouragement, to stick together, 
and to work hard through things. Now, these are not just pretty words. These are not just words to be read at weddings. These are words to live by. These are words with actions. Friends, we don't need a sin checklist. We need a love checklist. And here it is. Here it is. All we have to do is live by it. Maybe what we need to do daily at the end of our day or at the beginning of our day is to check ourselves on how loving we have been or how loving we plan to be and to remember what that looks like each day. Now, there are people who think that love is weak and that to be loving is to be sort of mamby-pamby, you know, be kind of soft. That's what love is about. But the truth is, loving like Jesus calls us to love is not weak. It's strong, and it's hard, but it is strong, and it is powerful. Peter goes on later in this, chap in this book, and over to chapter 4, and he says that love covers a multitude of sin. How does it do that? It does it because it is strong. Jesus' love is stronger than anything that we can throw at it. So how do we do it? How do we catch it? How do we desire to do it? We have to allow the word of Jesus to be strong in our life to change our hearts. That's how it gets done. In order for us to truly love as Jesus loves, Peter tells us to love from the heart. It's our heart that must be changed. One of my favorite Old Testament passages, and one I pray a lot in all honesty, is from Ezekiel where the prophet tells the people that God wants them to have a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. We've got to love people from our heart and make our hearts soft to people because of God's softness in his heart toward us. The scriptures tell us clearly that what is in our hearts is what comes out of our mouths and it's what we see in our actions. We can't fake it. The world hears our words, and they watch our actions, and they don't see Jesus. That's what they're telling us. They don't see him. In Matthew 15, Jesus calls out the Pharisees for that very thing and tells them in these words, You hypocrites, Jesus is saying, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We have to be sure that our hearts are not far from the heart of Jesus. So now, how do we do that? Well, once again, Peter has made it clear. Verse 23 of, what we, of our passage this morning. For you have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. You have been born again. You have been changed because of the living and enduring Word of God. And what is the living and enduring Word of God but Jesus? It's Jesus. It was Jesus who changed Peter's life. Peter's interaction with Jesus on the side of that lake following the resurrection changed everything for Peter. It was that encounter when Peter was asked by Jesus, Do you love me? Three times Jesus said that to him, do you love me? If so, feed my sheep. And after that interaction, Peter's life was changed. He was transformed. 
He went from being a fisherman to really being a fisher of men, just like Jesus had said that he would make him. Peter truly understood love because he had received that kind of love from Jesus, and he had received forgiveness from Jesus. He knew the strength and the power of love because it had changed him. People everywhere want love, and we, we as Christians know the source of love. We know that that love is found in Christ alone. It is found in Jesus, and it is up to us to share that love with others. But they will not hear it from us unless we show it to them. And we show it to them in our actions. And we start in the church. We love one another deeply from the heart. We're not talking about just some ambiguous concept, some pretty words of love, not the cliche kind of love. That's not what Peter's talking about. He is talking about the love of Christ, the love that we see the details of in 1 Corinthians 13. That's the kind of love that changes people and changes the world. That is love with the details. May God give us the courage to be people with details to our love. Amen.